Good evening. Uh, I'm Jason. I'm a pastor here at the house, and uh, tonight's a really big night. There were uh, close to 200 uh, new students that, that, got, uh, that met their core groups tonight. Um, and it's, it's, it's a really wild deal because we ask, if, if you're in a core group or you just joined one, you know the experience. We ask people to commit to a whole year, but we're like, we don't know when you're going to meet, who you're going to meet with, what you're going to do, who's going to be in it, none of that stuff, but we need you to sign up for a whole year. Uh, and it's like, nobody's going to join these things, and like tons of people do. So uh, it's just a crazy act of courage, and I want to commend those of you guys that did. Um, it really, really, uh, the, the, the strange thing for me about core groups, and this is just what it's like in life, I think core groups just uh, sort of make me think about it more, um, is I have no idea what God has coming for all of our lives, you know, and I was sharing with our staff today and some of the guys as we were putting core groups together that I remember one year in particular, um, in the first couple weeks of my core group, uh, there was a, a group of sophomores that I just started meeting with, and our very first night, we were sort of going around getting to know each other a little, and one guy has just sort of expressed some things about himself where he said, you know, he'd never, he'd, he's never met his dad. Um, and we just sort of were taking that in and trying to understand him. And over the course of that year, he actually met his dad and we all met his dad. Um, it was kind of a weird, like he'd never had. And it just happened to be that year we were walking together, we did. And another guy just started dating this girl named Paige. And four years later, I got to officiate their wedding. Like just this Sunday, my wife and I were hanging out with, with Mark and Paige and their two kids and went to lunch with them. You know, I'm like, I have no idea that stuff's coming. You know, I didn't know Mark would be in my life 10 years later and that my wife would consider his wife one of her good friends in town. I had no idea that was going to be a thing. You know what I mean? Um, and, and I don't know what's in store for, for y'all that signed up for, for core groups, but I want to um, uh, just, uh, as much as, as God gives me the ability to do so, I want to bless them. Um, and so I want us all to pray for those, but, but I also want you to know this. Like, it, for some of you, because of availability or fear or something, you didn't sign up for a core group. Um, there's all sorts of other ways uh, to get to know people around here and to walk with people. You don't have to have a format uh, to, to get to know people. It just kind of makes it nice sometimes. When I'm sitting next to this guy and I'm like, dude, you signed up for a year, I signed up for a year, nobody's leaving. Um, it's sort of like sitting next to somebody on an airplane. I'm like, I can't get out, you know? Uh, so we might as well talk or just keep our headphones on the whole time. Anyway, um, uh, in any case, it's, it's a pretty cool thing. But um, we, we have all sorts of other opportunities to connect if you didn't uh, join a core group. But, um, but, but I know that, that all year also, oh, we have a full-time staff. Um, that exists uh, solely to, to meet with you. We want, we want you to be known and know Jesus, and we want to make that happen however we can. Um, you, you'll get to meet uh, four members of our staff, our interns, um, in the next couple weeks. So every year, uh, we hire four um, recent college graduates to work with us for 55 hours a week. It's their full-time job. We pay them nothing, pretty much. And, um, uh, and they spend a year of their life caring for you. That's what they do. Um, and all four of them will be preaching over the course of the next four weeks. We have a sermon series. We're taking an interlude in Daniel uh, for a sermon series we call Confessions. And each one of them has the daunting task of sharing with you uh, or confessing in front of you uh, something that's very hard for them in the faith. Um, and then they're going to preach into the midst of that context. And I, I want to encourage you to show up over the next four weeks um, to hear them, to hear what God has to say through them. I hope that you get to see their hearts and you get to know what they're like and you find that they're actually are fantastic people and you're able to ap approach them and, um, and that you'd seek them out for wisdom and counsel and, and life, okay? But let, let's, let's spend a moment praying for the core groups and then we'll get started with the sermon tonight. Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask um, for your anointing over, over these groups of people that you... Um, that you would give them hope. 
and that you would bring peace into their fears of being known. We all have those fears and that you would calm their anxieties or, or that you would trumpet rather with hope. That here in these contexts, they might actually be more known and know your son more than they ever have before. Tonight, we ask for the same thing. We ask for your word to find us out. That we would find common, um, a common struggle and common unity and common hope through your word. And that we would come to know your son more through this stuff tonight. So Holy Spirit, would you um, open ears and hearts and minds and may the meditations of my mouth or the words of my mouth and their meditations and the meditations of our heart and minds um, be pleasing to you. Would you keep me from heresy? That's always good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we're finishing up this first little chunk of Daniel tonight. Uh, we're gonna get into some, a lot of prophecy stuff during election season uh, coming up in four, four or five weeks. But um, we're still looking at Daniel chapter one mostly. That's what we're sitting in. And we're asking this question as we go through it. Um, what does God call us to as we live as sort of in a foreign land? Like we live in a place that doesn't look exactly like what we think the kingdom of God ought to look like in the world. Uh, and so, and as I'm thinking about it for, for you all, I'm thinking particularly of the college campus. Like, what does it look like for you to follow Jesus on the college campus? We've been exploring that, and tonight we're going to explore that more. Um, and we'll just start by opening up the Bible to actually First Peter. Every week I say, we're talking about Daniel, but we're not going to read Daniel. Uh, we, we are actually going to read Daniel today, too. Buckle up. Uh, get your Bibles out or your digital apps or whatever. First um, Peter chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Let's put that up on the screen, would you, bud? Thanks. Um, so, you, but you are not like that is where it starts. Obviously, I'm starting in the middle of an idea uh, here. But um, Peter had just gotten done talking about people that had rejected Jesus and were disobeying him and, and not following after him. And he says, but you're not like that. You who are in Christ, you're a chosen people. A royal, you're royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result of that, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Listen up. If you're in Christ, this is about you. Listen. Once you had no identity as a people, he's, he's quoting the prophet Hosea here and applying it to all those who are in Christ. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners... Keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. This is some of the message from 1 Peter. All right, leave that up there for a second. So first we find Peter, he's making claims about who we are if we are in Christ. These are, this is about our identity. Who are you? Peter tells us who we are in Christ. You are a chosen people. Handpicked, selected. God chose you. You're royal priests. If you're in Christ, you're royalty. And he intends to meet others through you. That's the role of a priest often, is interceding on behalf of others and God, like standing in the middle of that gap. If you are in Christ, he longs to actually meet others and have others meet him through you. You belong to him. Once you had no identity like this, but now you do. You have received mercy. These are the kind of claims Peter makes, right? You, friend, have an identity as one of God's people. You belong to him. You belong to a new nation, he says. And you will one day dwell on the new earth, and because of this, 
because our, 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 we have belong to a new people and a new nation and we have a home that we're looking forward to, he says we are temporary residents and foreigners on this earth. We are strangers and exiles. We are wanderers and we carry around dual citizenship. Living here, belonging there. And the first thing Peter does after he establishes our identity and he, can, he affirms who we are, the first thing he does is he warns us because we need it. He warns us so that we do not forget who we are or where our home is. If you are in Christ Jesus, you no longer belong here. You're in exile. We've been looking at this context in, in, in Daniel chapter 1 so far this semester because it's the story of God's faithfulness to and through a young man in exile. Exile literally just means not living in your homeland. Usually it carries the connotation of not even being able uh, to sort of be in your homeland. As we've already covered over the last few weeks, Daniel is living at a time when many Israelites were exiled from Jerusalem. They're exiled from their homeland and they're forced to live in a place that's not their home. And what we see all over the pages of Scripture is that until God judges the world and brings about the new heavens and the new earth, his people will always live like Daniel in some kind of exile. In other words, I don't know how often you think of it this way, but for the Christian, exile is the normal posture of life. It's the normal way that we live. It's a normal circumstance for the follower of Jesus. The author of Hebrews, uh, is just another author of the Bible to just fill out some of this language, um, said that, so, was talking about some of these Old Testament sort of heroes that we have in the faith that so many people that we read about in the Bible, the authors of Hebrews in chapter 11 says they longed for a better country and they lived as strangers too. And it wasn't Israel that they were longing for. It wasn't Jerusalem that they were longing for. It was a heavenly country, the author says. They lived as strangers in a strange land because they fixed their heart on something greater. If you believe in Jesus as Lord, then friend, you've been given a vision of a better country. One with no more sorrow. One with no more... This, by the way, is an unarguably better vision. Some of us believe it and some of us don't. But nobody argues that it's not better. <laughs> no more sorrow. No more death. No more pain. Eternal life. One where justice and peace are the air we breathe. And until then, the Christian is called not to give up. We long for it. It's not here yet. We don't live there yet. The earth hasn't been made new yet. Heaven has not come down as a new city on earth. And we're not called to settle for anything less. In one of his most famous uh, lines, um, my literary hero, C.S. Lewis, said this. Would you put that Lewis quote up? Some of you may know this. It's fantastic. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Perhaps some of you think your desires are too strong and God doesn't want to fulfill them. That's why I would argue against that. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friend, God wants our hearts and minds fixed 
on the treasures that exist at his right hand where Jesus sits, on what he's promised. And he has called us not to settle for what we see around us, but to long for more and not be satisfied until we see the redemption of all things, to live with discontentedness in a way for the rest of our lives, with dissonance, longing for the holiday at sea. But we exist as exiles because it's over the hill and we can't get there until God decides it's the right time. And the wisdom that God gives us is specifically to exiles who know that they're not home yet. And if we don't believe that, we're not going to be able to take in his wisdom well. So to Daniel and his friends as exiles, some of his wisdom for them through the prophet Jeremiah, which we looked at last week, right, is for them to be faithfully present on behalf of others and to faithfully resist false promises so that they might stay true to who they are and who God's called them to be. Faithful presence and faithful resistance. This is some of the wisdom God gives us in exile, friends. That's what we're going to be teasing out tonight. Last week, we talked about faithful presence. Or, or I started over here. I'll stick over here. Last week, we talked about faithful presence. God called his people while in exile, you may remember from Jeremiah 29, to look out for the welfare of the city, to live in the midst of the city and seek peace and wholeness and justice for the city and its people. And this is wisdom uh, for the exile that we live in today as well. Faithful presence means praying for your enemies and not returning evil for evil. It means loving your neighbor and making it easier on your professor to teach you and your roommates to love you. It means obeying the law of the land and working for peace so far as it depends on you. It means not making these safe little Christian ghettos, but living in and among the world on behalf of others for their good and for the glory of God. We talked about that last week. If you missed it, you can check it out in the podcast or just read your Bible or talk to me or something, right? But today what we're going to dig into is what faithful resistance looks like. And I wanted to talk about this uh, that way around because I'm terrified of sort of talking about faithful resistance and some of you going to your professors going, I'm a Christian, I can't read my biology book. That's not what faithful, there, there may be, I, I want to, uh, there's a caveat, there may be a couple of you who literally cannot hold on to the promises of God if you hear about somebody arguing with what you grew up with. If that's the case, you might actually need to spend more time strengthening your knees. But for most of us, that is not the calling, as we're going to see today. And there's many other places I could go for this, with Jesus, with, with the Apostle Paul, with Moses. By the way, these are mammoth figures in the history of God's people, okay? Their experience wasn't to sort of hole up and resist any of, of, of what the world is offering at all. So I want to look at the story of Daniel to explore what it actually does look like for most of us to, to sort of resist faithfully. Because that's part of what it means as an exile. Faithful presence is some of it, but the other side is faithful resistance. So God, would you be gracious to us and would you help us, uh, have this word be planted deep in our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name. So in the opening verses of Daniel, we, we find that Daniel and his friends um, sort of as exiles in the enemy's land. This is sort of verses three through seven. We don't, we don't need to put them up. I'm just going to paraphrase real quick. Um, uh, we've read those like two of the last three weeks. Um, as exiles in enemy lands, they were being educated by the enemy's way of life. They were instructed as they got brought over this cream of the crop. These good, they're, we're told they're good looking. We're told they're very smart. They had high aptitude. Um, that, that, that they were brought in and they were, they were to be educated by the Babylonian way of life, all the literature and, and, and wisdom of the Babylonian culture, they were to be instructed in for three years, to be assimilated 
into the Babylonian world. That's what they were instructed to be. They were to be served the enemy's food and luxuries. That's what, that's what else needed to happen. And they were given names, new names, replacing their identification in their old names with Yahweh, the Israelite God, the one that we Christians follow and believe in. They were given names that were re re replaced uh, or, or new names that were devoted to the Babylonian gods. And we know from reading Daniel, we know that they went along with most of this. They didn't say, no, we're Christian. They wouldn't have used the word Christian, but work with it. No, we're Christians. We don't do those things. That's not what happened. And for many of us in some of the homes we've grown up in and the culture we've grown up in, that's a surprise. This is God's enemies. Like, this is not, like, metaphorical either. Like, these, these are the people that literally pillaged his people and his temple. Literally. Like, America's not God's land. Israel literally was. And, and God's enemies pillaged it. And now his people are being educated and, 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 and indoctrinated into their way of life and given names associated with false gods. And they went along with most of it. They answered, for the rest of their lives, best we know, they actually answered to their Babylonian names. They held on to their Hebrew ones. But they still answered to their Babylonian ones. They learned the Babylonian way of life. Daniel, we're told, we'll see in a second, he served in Babylon for the next 70 years. But right away, right away during his training, he does resist something. And through this, we're going to explore what faithful resistance looks like. So let's look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 8. Uh, let's just go all the way through 21, I guess, um, although I'm going to mostly be focused on 8 through 16. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. So, so, so what we had just read a bit ago is the food from the king's kitchen. The very same meals the king was eating was to be given to Daniel and his friends and the Israelites that were taken in captivity. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. Well, one thing you'll notice as you read Daniel is how much the author continues to, to credit God with things. But that's sort of the subject for our last four weeks in Daniel. But he responded, this is the, the, the chief of staff, I am afraid of my lord, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. The king actually ordered that. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, remember Daniel is probably 15, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. So Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his friends that are Israelites. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. Let's keep going just for a bit so you guys can see where this leads. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of food and wine provided for the others. Let's go to the next one, if it's all right. God gave these young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, so three years, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service, and whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, 
he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus, some 70 years later. So get this. God strengthened these men and gave them ability to learn and grow wise. With Daniel further, he gave Daniel the ability to interpret dreams, and when these men were brought before the king, they were 10 times more capable than their peers. Now, now for, for those of you that, that sort of uh, have a tendency to sort of buck against anything that doesn't look like the church, what this means is Daniel and his friends were better Babylonians than the Babylonians. That's what this means. He was thriving within, not against that system. He was present and participating in that culture, and yet there is this one thing. He was determined, the text says, determined, resolved. He purposed in his heart, depending on your translation, not to eat the food from the king's kitchen, nor drink the wine offered to him, which not a single person in this room would do. Why would he resist such things? All right, so what do we know? We know it's not an actually an outright protest against the culture because Daniel took up positions of high authority within the culture. He participated in all these other things in the culture. It's not, it's not a protest against Babylon in, in, in any sort of public way. We know it's not just about food and dietary laws. Some people are, are prone to sort of do that because of the word defiled. We'll talk about that in a second. But, but, but there's no real law for him against drinking wine at all. Like it's totally okay to drink wine unless you're a Nazarite. And, so, and we also know later on, it's, it's implied that Daniel was eating the rich foods that were everybody else was eating. And, and if it was a, 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 an Israelite law thing, he would have maintained that the rest of his life. And, and just, he wasn't a vegetarian. That wasn't really a big category for them at the time. The text tells us that Daniel was determined not to defile himself. That's what the text says after we hear about the instructions to the chief of staff, what he was supposed to do, Daniel hears all of this, begins to experience all of this, and he decides, he determines, he resolves not to defile himself. In other words, Daniel did not want to pollute himself. He wanted to remain pure. This was primarily about his identity. It wasn't a culture war. This was about him. And Daniel knew that unless he took some action of faithful resistance, he would forget who he is and what God has called him to. And for some of you, I think this might sound silly. Like, right, how does eating nice meals help inform Daniel of his identity, okay? Uh, although in our culture, it's strange. I mean, maybe it's not strange. A lot of us identify with what we eat um, in our culture now. But, um, but, but do you see what was happening to him? Okay, he's this young teenager. Think of a sophomore, junior in high school age. Okay? young teenager, being taken from his home as a slave to a foreign country. Can you imagine what the conversations between him and his friends must have been like from Jerusalem to Babylon as they crossed the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East? Can you imagine? Did, did you think they wondered about whether they'd even live or be killed as they'd been taken and enslaved? Do you think they expected to be treated like like royalty, or do you think they more expected to be treated like slaves? Do you think they'd be promised places of high power and given the same food that the king himself dined upon? I don't know, but that's what Daniel was offered when he got there. 
He was being offered the good life in a new world. Why would the king do this? Remember, the king ordered this, so much so that the chief of staff was worried about being beheaded if he did not go through with this. I, I submit to you this. Why would he waste years and, and lives and power to oppress a people that would probably just grow vengeful of him and multiply because it's happened before? Why would he do that when all he really needed to do is seduce them out of his existence? Why fight Daniel and his friends when he could entice them? When he could just seduce them and incorporate them into his new world? If we just give them the best of what our culture offers, they'll probably forget all the promises of their homeland. You see, when you're in exile in a different country, it's always the temptation to forget about home and integrate here. The land that you live in, wherever it is in the world, the culture that you live in, the family you grew up in, the church you're a part of, the school you live in, the dorm that you live in, the business you work in, the, the cultures that are around you always have promises of the good life. Let us teach you our ways. Let us give you all of the rich comforts that we have to offer. And let us promise you an image of who you could be in this place. And let's see how long you hold on to any other identity if you just say yes to these things. Incidentally, Jesus was tempted by these exact three things in the desert. A brief story. In the year uh, 1772, there was this young pastor, famous guy named Jonathan Edwards. If you take a class from Jonathan Yeager, you'll hear about him. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is about 18. He's in the philosophy and religion department. Or I think it's still that department. Um, uh, so Jonathan Edwards is about 18 or 19 years old. He was a young pastor. And he moved from, from this small town in Connecticut to New York City. At, at right about your age, many of you. And New York City at that time, it didn't have like millions of people. It still had tens of thousands. And it really was a much different sort of metropolitan area than this town that Jonathan Edwards grew up in. It was a huge shift for a very young man trying to figure out who he is in the world. And within months of his arrival, we know that he arrived in New York City in August, and by December, he was already at article, at res resolution number 35. Within, you'll see what that means in a second, but, but within months, he began to, to make notes to himself. Later on, he would call them resolutions, and he made dozens of them. Here's this teenager living in a brand new world, not necessarily exiled from his homeland, but you get the idea, He's lifted up, uprooted out of what he knew, how he knew himself to be, the place that formed him and shaped him, and now he's in this brand new place trying to make sense of who he is and who God has called him to be, and he begins to write these resolutions out that are really intense. We're going to read them, or not all of them. They're 70, but, but let's look at them, and I want you to, as I'm reading through these, pay attention to sort of the severity of them, definitely, but be asking yourself, why would somebody do this? Why would somebody feel the need to do this? Isn't this a little too intense, right? Let's start reading through them. I'm just going to go through the notes here. So he began with a little bit of an introduction in his humility, saying, being sensible that I am, unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will. For Christ's sake, remember, now he's saying this to himself, remember to read over these resolutions once a week. 18 years old. Let's go to the next slide. Resolved 
that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with how many and how great soever. Resolution number two. Resolved to be continually endeavoring to find out some new invention or contrivance to promote the aforementioned things. Resolution number three. Resolved. If ever I shall fall and grow dull, so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. Resolution number seven. Resolved. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolution number 30, resolved to strive to my utmost every week to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. Resolution number 34, resolved in narrations never to speak anything but the pure and simple verity. Number 40, resolved to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I have acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. Number 46, resolved never to allow the least measure of any fretting uneasiness at my father or mother. Resolved to suffer no effects of it, so much as in the least alteration of speech or motion of my eye or Eve (laughs) at night, um, and to be especially careful of it with respect to any of our family. Number 52, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I lived old age. Number 56, resolved, never to give over, not in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. Number 65, resolved, and I, I want this one just because of the personal nature of it, resolved very much to exercise myself in this all my life long, with the greatest openness I am capable of, to declare my ways to God and lay open my soul to him, all my sins, temptations, difficulties, sorrows, fears, hopes, desires, and everything in every circumstance, according to Dr. Manton's 27th sermon on Psalm 119. This guy heard a sermon, and he said, I don't ever want to forget that. Why would he write this down? Why would he write any of these things down? Friends, you don't resolve to do something unless it's easy to do the opposite. I resolve never to forget Dr. Manton's 27th sermon on Psalm 119. That's not what he said. It's actually better than that. He didn't say to forget. He wants to live in response to what he heard in that sermon. I resolve to do these things that I was convicted to do when I heard that sermon. If I don't write this down and resolve to do that, I will forget. Edwards resolved to remember because it's easy to forget. He resolved not to speak ill of another because it's easy to do so. He resolved not to fret over his parents because it's so easy to do so, especially at night before bed. He resolved to never give up working against his sin because it's so easy to give up. And he did all of these primarily because he had just moved to a strange new land with new opportunities for who he is and what life can look like, and he didn't want to lose his way. He didn't want to forget what he knew to be important, and he needed to resolve and to write it down or else he would forget. Brothers and sisters, Daniel resolved 
to not eat the food or drink the wine because he knew how easy it was for him to be seduced into the new life. To think that if he grew strong and wise and powerful that it was the Babylonians doing, not God's. To forget his God and forget who he is and who Daniel is. This is what faithful resistance looks like. Though God may, I, I really submit this to you, at times call his people to publicly protest and revolt. Daniel actually does this later, incidentally. That's not the norm for the Christian life. Those are special occasions and special times. And we do so with the utmost care and still looking out for the welfare of others, not ourselves. Notice that even after Daniel determined, that's what verse 8 says in Daniel chapter 1, even after he determined not to eat the food and drink the wine, he asked permission. And when the person he asked permission to said no, he asked for another person to just give him a small test and see if it was agreeable to them. And we are nowhere told that this caused like a big uprising, there was any kind of mutiny. We aren't told that anybody was disturbed by this. It's just some guy over here eating a sack lunch. I don't know why he's doing it. When we've got these great meals, quite frankly, he's not threatening to us. We can just make fun of him. We get filet mignon and rich red wine. He's eating a cucumber. I don't know why that's threatening. Maybe. But for Daniel, this is what he could, because if he resisted learning the literature, his chief eunuch would be, or the chief of staff would be killed, or he would be killed. If he resisted offering any sort of service, if he stopped answering to his name, it just, he, he would have just died and, and been wasted away in the history of God's people. Here is a way that he could remember God and who he is three times a day while still being able to participate in that culture. This was personal. And that's a clue. That's a clue to the norms of the wisdom God calls us to in presence and resistance, right? We are present, listen to this, we're present for others, we resist for ourselves. We say yes for others, we say no for us. And so we give food to others, but if you're a Christian, you fast. You spoil others, but if you're a Christian, you tithe. You're quick to listen, but you're slow to speak. We're present for others. If you resist, it's for you. Faithful presence, faithful resistance. You're present for others, you resist for you. This is some of the wisdom of God for his people and exiles. Brothers and sisters, remember who you are. And do not forget the holiday at sea which awaits for us. Easy to say. If you agree with that, if you are in Christ, you might nod your head somewhat and go, yep. But if you do not resolve to say no to some things, to resist some things, you will forget. Because the trappings and enticements of everything around you will dull your memories and weaken your appetites and you will settle for mud pies in the slums. Many of you I know right now, this is going around, we, we, many of us gather together to pray at 7.15 on Tuesday nights, and any of you are invited to just come and pray with us for the night. I love that. But we were gathered around, and I know many of you are wiped out and exhausted right now. And I submit to you, some of it is just the nature of, of, of dates and, and, and responsibilities, like exams. 
But many of you are exhausted precisely because you have not resolved to say no to anything. You say yes to the world around you. And in the fog of busyness and of keeping up with all of these things, don't you see how hard it is to hold on to the promises of God? How hard is it for you right now, if you're in that fog, to believe that God's got you and that he loves you and that he's for you and that he's freed you to be for others in the midst of this season? It's hard to believe if you don't resolve to say no to some things. This is why Peter in 1 Peter, which we read at the beginning, says, keep away from the worldly desires which wage war against your souls. Remember, Peter had just made declarations about who we are. And then he warns us to keep away from things which tear at that. Resolve to keep away from those things. You are an exile. But if you do not resolve to keep away from certain things, you will forget it. You will forget that your citizenship is in heaven and you will settle for the promises here and for the good life here. And you've seen it over and over already and you'll see it again and again. We still go after it. But the good life here will never satisfy. It demands everything and it, promise, it delivers nothing. It actually promises everything. But it delivers nothing. You will need to resist the enticements and the temptations of this world which wage war against your soul. You'll need to resist buying into the self-focused individualistic promises of the world around us. Christian, are you determined? Have you purposed? Are you resolved like Daniel not to defile yourself with the trappings of this world? If so, you cannot say yes to everything. There must be some things which you say no to, and this wisdom is so good, we see it everywhere. Anything of significance in the world requires resistance, anything. Any successful athlete must resist all sorts of pleasure to succeed. Any successful romance must resist selfishness. If you want to be wise with your money, you must resist spending it on every whim of desire. If you want to do well in school, you must resist distraction. If you want to do well in your core group, you must resist judgment. You must resist not fulfilling commitments and just doing whatever you feel like every moment. And if you want to be like Jesus and remember your identity with him, you must resist things as well. You cannot say yes to everything and hope to hold fast to who you are in Christ. Friends, we don't live in like this neutral world. We don't. We live amongst a battlefield of truths and meanings and narratives about the good life. We're at war every day for our souls and for the souls of many around us. You walk out your door and you say yes to everything and you don't resist a thing, you don't resolve to say no to some things, it just simply means you're tossed to and fro by the waves of life in a foreign land. And so Daniel, even as he's obeying God in his faithful presence to the Babylonians, looking out for the welfare of their city and seeking his own peace in their peace, he calls us to similar things today even in that place he found a way to hold fast to who he was in God through resistance and it was a resistance that didn't come with much fanfare it didn't upset the system it simply was a way for Daniel to remember who he was for all of us for all of us the common Christian practices of fellowship worship study prayer sacraments they offer actually that sort of resistance not not all of us in the world by the way have the freedom to do all those things but where we can practice what Christians have practiced for 2,000 years, we will find a sort of resistance there. 
I think of worship, particularly where I grew up in Seattle. When I started going to church in college in, 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 on the West Coast, that was a huge sacrifice. Here, nothing's open on Sunday mornings. Nobody does anything until lunch except for tip poorly at lunch. That's it. Like, but but that, that's it. If you're a server, sorry. If you're a Christian, tip well on Sundays. But, but in Seattle, NFL games start at 10 o'clock in the morning. And Sunday is a weekend off and everything's open. All the best places for brunch and breakfast are open. All of my friends were going skiing and hiking and doing all these wonderful things. And if I went to church, it means I wasn't with them and somebody was going to ask why I can't do all the fun things on Sunday. One of the reasons I, f- I, 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 forgo- I, I, I forewent, I don't know what the word is, one of the reasons I resisted, I suppose, doing all these other things and going to church was because I wanted to remember who I was and be reformed every week, to be reoriented every week on who I was. Maybe that doesn't have the same ring to it here, but throughout the history of God's people, the, the regular practices, we typically call them in the church the means of grace, the ways that God has asked us to live and be together and remember him and participate, the seasons of the Christian calendar where we reenact and re-remember what God has done, these things can help form us. And almost always they are an act of resistance. Who prays except for when they have no other option? Who reads the Bible when they have more productive things to do and when they can't make sense of it anyway because they only read two verses every month? Who does those things? Who fasts? This world, our economy, I don't know if you've ever listened to these kinds of words. We, what it means to be a good American right now, according to the media and according to our politicians, is for you to consume. Literally, what we need to fix the world is for you to have consuming power and consume more. And here as a Christian, I'm going to fast. The world is promising you more resources, and here we're going to tithe. The regular practices are a form of this. You might not have to look too far sometimes. But for each of us, we we probably will need to discern some peculiar ways to resist, some peculiar ways to say no, according to our temptations, according to what wages war against our souls. What causes you to slowly forget who you are in Christ and what he's called you to do? What things make it harder for you to remember or believe in the promises of God? Where do you need to make resolutions in your conversations with others? Where do you need to make resolutions in your social media habits? Where do you need to make resolutions with your money? Where do you need to make resolutions with how you spend your time? Where do you need to make resolutions with what you think about? You are chosen, royal, and you belong to God. Your home is another country, a better one. Are you resolving to keep away from all the things which wage war against that truth inside and out? I think you need to answer those questions. And I want to encourage you not to do it alone. (laughs) If you're in a core group or you have friends who know Jesus, ask them to help you think through what you need to say no to in order to hold fast to your identity in Christ. Or come talk with me. Talk with one of our leaders. Like uh, The leaders in the room, I think, are wearing white bracelets. You can find them or look on our website or whatever. I'll pass you off to some guy named Josh if you remember that. Uh, uh, but you can come find us and talk to us about it. Like I would love to spend some time praying and listening and talking to you about what you can say no to. And if I don't know how to help, I can try to connect you with somebody who does. But, but you're probably better off not trying to figure all that out alone. Typically, friend, we don't see ourselves well. Typically. As a matter of fact, um, every Tuesday right after the sermon, there's uh, some leaders in the room in the back who would love to pray with you. 
about any of this stuff and they will hold your prayers in confidence. They don't like report to our staff. Like what were the prayer requests? Like that doesn't happen. Um, they just want to be back there to pray with you. Um, and, and during the worship set, like right after I, I get done preaching, um, every single Tuesday, you can just walk on back and find somebody back there to pray with you, okay? Um, but, but there's one more thing I, I want us not to forget and I want to end tonight with this, okay? As we've been talking about faithful presence and faithful resistance and the wisdom God calls us to, right? The wisdom of God is that we should learn from him how to be faithful in our presence and our resistance as exiles. That's wisdom. But that's not the gospel. Gospel means good news, okay? okay? Is it a kind of good news that God gives us wisdom? Yes. And it is wise when we read how God sort of instructs us to be present and to resist. But the good, these are different things, the wisdom and the gospel, right? We will fail often at applying wisdom, you and I. The good news is that God already did all this on our behalf. That's the gospel. Our great king, our elder brother, he has gone before us to show the way and to make the way. Like He is the way. In him we are faithfully present. In him. In him the enemies of God are blessed. In him the sick and the poor have hope. In him the welfare of the city of the enemies of God is looked out for. And in him, we faithfully resist. The point of faithful resistance is our identity. And he faithfully resists for us. In him, we are secure. He will finish what he started. Brothers and sisters, Jesus will bring us like over the hill to the holiday at sea one day. And so the command in scripture is like all over the place is to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and do not give in to the trappings of the fallen world. Do not give up longing for the better country, even while you are living your life here. And so, so wisdom from God means we will learn to be faithful in presence and resistance. But the good news, in the words of, of one pastor here in town, is that God will actually just bring all his people all the way home one day. That's the good news. Let's pray and let's respond to the God who promises to do that and invites us to live in the world in this way. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for the faithful examples of um, people who've gone before us in the faith, but, um, but we know Daniel isn't perfect. And the reality, Father, is that most of us, even though Daniel's not perfect, most of us aren't even close to that. And so, and so while we learn from examples, we need to know that your wisdom is not judgment over us and another law for us. It's just opportunity because of the freedom we have in your son, Jesus, who became sin on our behalf and made us the righteousness of you. I pray for every one of us in this room that you would call us to, to faithful presence and you would call us to faithful resistance you lead the way. You'd remind us like Peter of who we are before you warn us of anything. You'd tell us how much we mean to you, that we're chosen, that we're loved, that we're royal, that we're set apart, that we have a better country waiting for us. And then teach us how to live here well. I pray that your spirit would not let any one of us get out of answering the question of what we need to resist though be incessant and annoying to us and give us people to talk to about it and, and give them wisdom. As we respond to you now, um, please receive our praise. Um, we long to give you praise. Um, you've placed that in our hearts and um, 
May you delight in us tonight as we respond to you. And, and Father, I just pray for all my friends taking finals and that kind of stuff, that you help them know how to study well and, um, and thrive through the midst of all of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.